0: In case you have not yet figured it out, in your little corner of the world, we live in a society that is filled with lies and liars from top to bottom, lies from the government, lies from the news, Hollywood stars, the media, schools lie, higher education lies, universities lie. Sometimes, our family and our friends lie to us. What people call good today and they lecture other people about often is evil, and yet they call it good. What they decry with moral outrage is often something Jesus would hardly approve. Isn't that amazing? Most people, if you study them, they live as if God is not real and does not exist. Maybe they acknowledge He's there, but they live their lives as if God is inconsequential. One of the things we always hope that in our worship services is that is that we have a high view of God and a high view of the Word of God, and we recognize that this is just a rehearsal for meeting God in the heavens. Um, And if people really could get a sense of what God is like in the heavens, they would not be so flippant about the way they approach life. And God down here on earth. Would you agree? We are church placed here and then soon somewhere else and then soon after that somewhere else in order to proclaim truth because the educational systems of the world are failing. They're not giving truth. The, um, the media is failing. They're not presenting truth. Our government's failing. They're not presenting truth. So God has his church. This is the institution that God is working towards to make sure everyone else hears truth because um, they're not going to hear truth from there. I mean, I know 2 plus 2 equals 4. I think they're still teaching that in the schools, but if we expand too much beyond that, we find out they're not getting the truth about life. We're here to preach truth, the eternal truth, truth of the living God. He's a God who doesn't change. So what he said was true thousands of years ago is still true now. doesn't change. People can't change him, so they can't change his word. So truth is truth, and it always will be truth. Truth is not up for a vote. Truth doesn't get to change with the wind. It doesn't change with political correctness. It is what it is, and we always will preach and teach truth with the grace of God assisting us. In fact, we're told that we are to tear down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's our duty is to tear that down. It's part of the spiritual warfare we've been learning in the first hour. At least some of you have been learning in the first hour. Some of you haven't been coming. And you need to come, and you'll be learning more there first hour. Um, This is an important part of our calling as a church, one we need to take seriously, truth, proclaiming truth. We've been studying the church's first sermon, a proclamation of truth, right in the face of all kinds of lies in their generation as well. That's right. We're not the first generation to invent lying. It's been around a while, and uh, Peter's been our example, Peter, simple fisherman, Galilee, now baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, saw with his own eyes and touched with his own hands the resurrected Christ, that Peter, now standing in front of a whole host of very potentially hostile people to the cause of Christ. And he's preaching, preaching as a man on fire, combining irrefutable logic and fact with all of the conviction and passion that his heart could generate. And he's declaring magnificent truths about Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to hear more of those truths today as we turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, please uh, take that and open it to Acts 2. And um, we're going to see the kind of messages that the church should be proclaiming in every age. This is what the church should sound like. If you're wondering, what should a church be preaching? Well, here it is. This was the first sermon um, from the first day of the church, born on the day of Pentecost, and Peter's preaching it really on behalf of all the apostles. You could say any of the apostles would preach the same thing. He's their spokesperson. So this is apostolic doctrine. This is what Jesus wanted him to teach, and this is what we need to hear. The world needs to hear it. In fact, I would say that if you really look at this this um, sermon, and that's what we're trying to do. You'll see that it hurt the people that it was preached to. And that's a little hint that um, when we preach truth, it hurts, and uh, that's okay. That's okay. In fact, it it pierced them to the heart. It convicted them very, very hardly. It made them feel terrible about themselves, actually. Good Bible preaching makes people feel terrible about themselves, (laughs) at least initially. The good thing about the pain is the pain was short-lived, and it's much better to have short-lived pain now than to have eternal pain later much better to have the pain now and have joy later. And so that's what good truth does. It, it, it uh, uncovers the mask. It, it blows away the fog. It takes away the mirage and all of the lying and the exaggeration and the human pomp. And it says it like it is. And if you're willing to hear it, you'll have pain now, but you'll have joy for eternity. That's the beauty of this sermon. Let's read it again. I'll start in chapter 2, um, again, verse 14, and go all the way to... Uh, where he ends, although we'll make mention of verse 37 today as well. Verse 14, But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon and the blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, "'I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope.' "...because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, "...that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day." And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What an amazing sermon. And we've been following it through the outline that he provides here. Peter just. Treks along here in a chronological order, starting with the life ministry of Christ, and went on to his death. We talked about those two last time, and then today um, into his resurrection, following his death, and then really to the climax and jesus 's climax as well, all the way to the ascension. We covered the life of Jesus last time. What did we see? We saw that the life of Jesus, chronicled, documented by eyewitnesses, was a supernatural life. When people today say we want to understand the historic Jesus, if they don't understand that he performed multiple, genuine, true, supernatural, public miracles of every kind, if they don't understand that that was true of the historic person called Jesus of Nazareth, then none of their historical study and none of their historical conclusions are worth anything at all. They're not education. They're prejudice. This man and every eyewitness that saw him, his enemies, his friends, people that were trying to figure him out, everybody concluded he was a miracle working man. Not a man who had tricks, but a man who had power. Power unseen by any other man in the history of this world. Jesus was unique and it was confirmed by everybody who saw him. Every, every Testimony we have of the life of Jesus from anyone who saw him or heard him says he did miracles of every kind, changing nature, raising men from the dead, healing every kind of disease, commanding spirits. He was in charge of that. And then it all led to his death. They were afraid of him, intimidated by him. They hated him without a cause, as he said, and it led to his death. And his death was consequential, too. His death wasn't just an example. Many of the liberal Protestant churches think Jesus was a good example by dying in a loving kind of way. That only gets that much of understanding the death of Jesus. His death was part of an eternal plan, a predestined plan. God put into motion before the world was even made that there would be sin in the world. There would be man that's made, and man would fall into sin, and then he would send a Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Bible says, was slain even before the Foundation of the world. This was all part of God's plan to demonstrate His glory, to demonstrate His hatred towards sin and His love towards, and His mercy towards those who had fallen in the sin and that would call Him. This was something God wanted to show through the death of Jesus. Put Jesus up high. What kinds of forms of death put someone up high to see how they die? Jesus was killed by the Romans because this was what God wanted. Put Him up high. Put Him up public, and you'll see what God thinks of sin. He hates it. That's what He does with it. But you'll also see what God thinks of sinners. He loves them and will save them. And this is the length to which he will go, to put his son up there, bloody, crucified, suffering, and in shame just to save our souls from his wrath and his burning hell that is coming. All of that was to teach us. It was to save us also. His death was a substitutionary death. He died in the place of sinners. If he did not die in the place of sinners, sinners would pay for their own sin. It's that simple. And so we love God and Christ for coming and dying for us. But anyone who says that's where the story ends, again, pays no attention at all to the eyewitnesses and the message of the Bible. It is again to bring prejudice and the prejudicial eyes to the text of Scripture and not realize that all four of the Gospels start in their first chapter, chapter 1, and they work towards their last chapter. And in every one of the last chapters, it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 20 and 21, Luke chapter 24, Mark chapter 16, Matthew chapter 28. There it is. You come to the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus. You go to the book of Romans. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the beginning. You go to First Corinthians. There's a whole chapter on the The doctrine of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection, not only of Christ, but our resurrection in the future, and carry it all the way through the Revelation. I don't have time to talk about every book of the New Testament. And there it is. He stands in chapter one of Revelation and he says, I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you see and send it to the seven churches. The resurrection is central to everything, it's our joy to take a look at it today. And isn't it wonderful that it's not even Easter and we get to study the resurrection. So look at this part of the sermon with me, his resurrection. If you really think about this here. As Peter is preaching on this day, and he started talking about the Holy Spirit, and he, and he quoted Joel, and then he moved on, and he, and he quoted more of the, the Psalms. He talked about Jesus' life. Really, what Peter wanted to get to, the main thing that Peter wanted to get to in his sermon was the resurrection and the ascension. That really was the point of this sermon, this first sermon. Not so much to talk about the miracles. Those were amazing, Not so much to talk about the death of Jesus. That was unparalleled as well. But to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Listen again to the emphatic nature of his words in verse 24. But God raised him up again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power. Please notice how important the truth is in this verse. The bodily, historic, testified and confirmed resurrection of Jesus the Nazarene is the greatest proof that man, that man, was and is the eternal Son of God. That man is the king of the nation of Israel. That man is the heir of the entire world. That man is the one favored by God. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that. It's true enough that Jesus' life was wonderful, particularly his supernatural ministry. We like to talk about the man who walked on water. That's great. That's wonderful. It was unparalleled in the annals of human history. Others have never done anywhere near what Jesus did in terms of the miraculous. There is no philosopher. There is no religious leader anywhere that you can read about that did this and that it was documented by eyewitnesses. It's just not there. And true enough, his death was wonderful. It fulfilled prophecy, did it not? It revealed the matchless, sacrificial love of God. We already said that. It paid for all of the evil acts that you and I have ever committed. This is true. However, if you study, and you should, and we will, the apostolic preaching of the early church and in this book, the book of Acts, you cannot but be convinced that this event, the resurrection of Jesus, was the central point of all evangelistic teaching and preaching. Rather than Peter explaining all the intricacies of what the death of Jesus Christ accomplished, he really didn't talk about any of that here, you may notice. When the apostles took their stand as a group with Peter out front, and Peter was the spokesman and he was preaching the gospel, it was the resurrection he got to and talked about the most. Why? And you need to know this for your evangelism As well, your personal evangelism, when you go talking to other people, you need to never, ever forget to talk about and camp on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection was the proof Jesus was the Messiah. It was the most important sign Jesus ever performed. At one time, even though he performed a lot of signs, he said, no sign will be given to this evil generation except the sign of Jonah as he was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth three days and three nights. I'm going to give you just one sign, he said, just one super sign, and it's going to be the resurrection, and that's all you're going to get. Well, it was good enough. It was good enough. Listen, rather than the crucifixion proving Jesus was not from God, remember the Jewish leaders that mocked him on the cross? They kept saying, if you're of God, get yourself down from the cross. Remember that? Rather than the, the crucifixion proving Jesus was not really from God, the resurrection proved beyond any doubt he was not only from God, he was the Son of God. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Rather than the death of Jesus disqualifying him from being the Messiah, as we learned last time, the resurrection makes it abundantly clear who God's man is. Nobody else is in the same stratosphere as Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. Boast about him, brag about him. He is the greatest. To put anybody even close to the same status as Jesus is to insult Jesus Christ. Think about this. Of all the people who have ever lived on this planet, how many do you think that is? I have no idea. There's like, what, 7 billion now, so you try to think how many lived. You don't really know. Billions and billions, right? Men and women, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, all the continents. God let all of them die, except for Enoch and Elijah. He let all of them die. All of them. God's the giver of life. Here we are, suffering and struggling, and he lets all of us die. That's right. That's what God does. He lets all of us die. We all die, right? Me You guys are looking at me like I'm nuts. We all die, right? God kept none of them and us alive, none. People want to say, well, I don't think I'm a sinner. Then why is God letting you die? Think about that. God raised permanently from the dead only one life. Now, if God said nothing else, that says a lot. All the rest of you I disapprove of. His life, He pleases me. What did God say directly from the heavens without a mediator? Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. I guarantee you, when I was baptized, that was not said about me. And I'm willing to bet it was not said about you. That's why we had to be washed. Boy, when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist freaked out. He said, no, I should be baptized by you. And he said, permit it, we're fulfilling all righteousness this way. Just amazing, Christ is, one life. Only that life pleased God. Only that life was innocent. You know, people ask all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's a pretty good answer to that. And the answer is they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. There are no good people. But what about the babies? Well, unfortunately, the babies are born into a world of sin and... Um, We all are responsible for that. The only good person that a bad thing ever happened to is Jesus of Nazareth, and God refused to let that bad act stand. They killed him. That was bad. They murdered the Son of God. That's a bad thing. Here, Jesus, you could complain and say, well, what did he say on the cross? My God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? But God refused to let that stand. That was wrong. He he would not let that stand. And so... The Jews of that generation, with their pompous, unteachable hearts, they took their Messiah, their king, and they nailed him to a cross, and God said, that's not right, and that's not going to stand, and he reversed it. He changed it. He brought, they killed him. God brought him back to life. They tried to do away with him. God just brought him right back. So this is not going to work. Even though it was God's predetermined plan to have Jesus nailed to the cross, it was still an evil act by men. God would not let it stand. By the way... God set a, a, a plan in motion that his son would be killed, and uh, God himself didn't do it. He put the plan in motion, but it was the Jews who cried, crucify him, crucify him. It was the Romans who actually carried out the nailing of it. So you could say Jesus used the mediators of the Jews and, and the Romans because it involved an evil act. But when it came to raising Jesus from the dead, he used no mediator at all. Uh, it's not men who raised Jesus from the dead. It's not angels who raised Jesus from the dead. Aliens did not raise Jesus from the dead. God decided to do that act directly himself. And notice Peter says the resurrection put an end to the agony of death, the pains of death, the hold of death on him. Peter explains that this was because it was impossible for death to hold the Messiah. I like that. It was impossible. Peter is personifying death here. Death's like a jailer who tried to grasp Christ's dead body in the tomb gleefully having his long, bony fingers all around the body of Jesus, wrapped around that scourged and crucified, bleeding body, right? And he's there just putting his chest out and flexing his muscles and basking in his power and glory. Here's the supposed life giver, and I've got him now. He's mine. The Messiah's body was death's grand trophy to hold in his hand because death defeats all others. I heard somebody, uh, I was reading, and, and uh, I, th- I think I got this right that Tom Brady's playoff record now is uh, 26 and 9. Not so bad. 26 wins and 9 losses. Some of you hate that. Back in the day, it was a quarterback named Bart Starr. His was uh, even a better percentage, Green Bay quarterback. 9 wins and 1 loss. It's very, very good. Death's record is something like 20 billion to 0. He is undefeated. Death. No wonder he's so boastful about things. He's undefeated, that is, until Jesus. Early that Sunday morning, some divine light shone from the tomb, and death began to lose his grip. Death panicked. He flexed his muscles, but then he began to scream. He tried so desperately to hang on to this body. But in a burst of divine life-giving impulse straight from the throne room of God in heaven, the giver of life, Death realized, this is impossible. I cannot hang on to him anymore. The heavenly power of God cast death off like it was an old garment. And then Jesus, shining in glory, emerged from the tomb, walked right out of that tomb, unaffected, unchallenged. And you can even know that the mock, the mock against death began at that moment. Paul would pick up that mock later in 1 Corinthians, and the mock is this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And there Jesus stood, the risen one. I quoted it before, but I love it. He told his good friend, John, the son of Zebedee, who saw Jesus in glory and fell at his feet as a dead man, he said, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. What an amazing thing death was defeated for the first time. In fact, he was badly beaten. He was trounced. Uh, It wasn't even close. And now we remember the promise that Jesus made because his resurrection relates to our lives. Because you're sitting there wondering that's wonderful truth, but it always relates to us. Because Jesus told Martha when she was mourning about her brother had been dead four days, Lazarus, He promised her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Death is not going to be the last chapter in your life either. Now, sometimes we think, well, what he's talking about is when we die, our spirit leaves our body and we go. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your body coming back to life. That's what happened in the tomb. His body came back to life. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, it says, God has not only raised the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us up through his power. Because he was raised, we'll be raised. Because death was not his last chapter, it's not our last chapter. That's why we're Christians, we believe this. We believe in the resurrection. We believe it's not just our our soul's going to leave the body and we're going to be with Jesus. That's wonderful truth also. It's that our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, our soul and body united. We're going to have a better model of ourselves, and it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be joyous. Death did not have the ability to hang on to the Lord Jesus. Why not? Well, Peter provides the reason. And it is in the Scripture that he declares the Messiah would actually be raised from the dead. This is Old Testament. This is hundreds of years, a thousand years before Jesus' life. And, and the Messiah was promised to be raised from the dead. And we know the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus himself said that. This passage that Peter is quoting from here is, is Psalm 16 a messianic psalm at least part of the psalm is messianic and he's quoting from psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 the psalm was written by david it was written after second samuel chapter 7 we know that because in second samuel chapter 7 god had a covenant with david and promised david through the prophet nathan that one of david's descendants would sit on his throne and would reign forever The more immediate fulfillment of that was Solomon, but Solomon was not the full fulfillment. There was coming another greater son of David who would come and would sit on his throne in Jerusalem and reign over Israel, indeed, over the whole world forever. So the psalm itself, if you go back and read Psalm 16, we don't have time today to do that. It's about David trusting confidently in God. He's approaching a time of suffering, and he's crying out to God, and he says, God is at my right hand. In other words, God is right here by my side, and he's my protector. He's like my bodyguard. And then in this part of the psalm, it is the Messiah who is speaking through the mouth of David. You might say David is speaking, but he's not speaking of himself. He's now speaking of his son, a future David, who will be greater than him. And he's speaking as if he is the Messiah. And because of the protection that David would have, he's kind of prefiguring this Messiah. And he could say, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Thoughts of God's goodness and God's protection brought David joy. By the way, if you want glad tidings and a joyful heart, follow Jesus. That's his point. It's not boring to follow Jesus. He also writes, his flesh will abide in hope. Flesh refers, of course, to the physical body. He knows that God is not going to abandon um, his body. He's not going to be abandoned. His soul is not going to be abandoned to Hades. Hades is the place of the departed dead where they go off after they die. And that term soul in Hebrew, nefesh, sometimes refers to the soul as opposed to the body, but sometimes soul can stand for the whole person, body and soul. And that's probably what he intends here to keep with the Hebrew parallelism, meaning the whole life. In other words, his life would not be abandoned to Sheol. It would not be the last thing that happened to him. Sheol uh, is the Hebrew counterpart to Hades. It is the place of the departed dead. And it was considered both the underworld and and also the grave wherein men had to descend down into it. Actually, the New Testament translates Sheol as Hades. So body and soul went down into Sheol. The whole man went down into Sheol. It was an ominous place. There was no life there. In fact, when the Bible talks about Sheol, it talks about this place that is always hungry and always swallows up. We think of, you know, death can never be satisfied. No matter how much you feed death, uh, death just wants more. And some of the Old Testament passages speak of this Sheol as a place that swallows alive. For example, Proverbs 1.12 um, of evil men, it's evil men speaking. It says, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. Sheol, the pit, swallow them whole, you know, keep consuming them. They're never, you know, Sheol is never satisfied. Here's another verse, Proverbs 27.20. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Gulp, gulp. They keep drinking, they keep eating, and they're never satisfied. But God would not abandon David is the point. God would not abandon David to Sheol. The verb abandon is strong. It means to leave it there, to forsake it, to abandon it. It's used, for example, in Psalm 22, one. The uh, passage that I just mentioned, Jesus quoted from the cross. In Psalm 22, 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the same term, abandoned me. No, he would not be abandoned to the grave. Now, please understand that David does not say that he himself would never die or that his life would not go down to sheol. He's talking, but he's speaking of the future. Some have wrongly interpreted this that David was was uh, guaranteeing that he would never die in a battle, he would he would be preserved from dying all the way uh, all the way through. And that that may be true in other psalms and other deliverances that David gives God credit for, but that does not fit Psalm 16. Rather, what he is talking about is not being forsaken to Sheol's power. That leaves room for some greater deliverance out of the clutches of Sheol, you see. David goes on to write there, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay and here he's directly not talking about himself for he's not the holy one the holy one is the messiah the hasid the holy one that's a messianic term in the old testament it was connected to david because the messiah was david's son but it wasn't david the anointed one the hasid that that special one actually in greek it is the hasion the holy one he would not see decay. His body would not undergo decay. That's the prophecy. Decay is a Hebrew term that indicates the pit or the grave where the body would lay down into and eventually it would rot and it would begin to decay. In, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says the Holy One will not see corruption. The Hebrew actually has the Holy One will not see the pit. But it has the same meaning because in the pit it would see corruption. So what he's saying is this holy one, this future son of David will not see any decomposition of his body when he's placed into the ground, into the pit. That's the prophecy. This holy one, this Hasid will not decay. He will not be abandoned to that decomposition. So clearly David was not writing about himself, and Peter understands that. He was looking through himself to the future and to the Messiah. Jesus' body, when placed in the ground, though he truly died, would not begin to decay. It would not suffer any decomposition at all. He was raised from the dead, if you think about it, very quickly on the what? On the third day. Why so quickly? Because of this prophecy that he his body would not suffer any decay at all. Instead, as the psalm goes on, the path to life was made known to Christ. You have made known to me the path of life. And Jesus himself anticipated the fullness of joy, the fullness of gladness, which only comes in the glorious presence of his God. You know, we're allowed, according to uh, our documents here in this country, to pursue happiness all we want. But the truth is the greatest happiness and joy is in the presence of God. Indeed, this indicates that the joys of heaven must be so extreme we can't even begin to imagine them right now. In God's presence is not fullness of boredom. In God's presence is fullness of gladness and joy. Please remember that. Don't let Satan get into your head otherwise. Our resurrection from the dead, our resurrection from the dead will participate in what is happening to the Messiah where he's raised, has the path of life, and receives all the joy. The promises. because he was raised, we will be raised. We participate in all of this as well. Charles Spurgeon, in a devotion called "Beside Still Waters, writes very beautifully about death's shallow victory even over us. I want to quote it to you, as only Spurgeon can write. "'In a while I shall slumber in the tomb, yet I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God.'" Job nineteen, twenty-five and 26. My eyes, which soon will be glazed in death, will not always be closed in darkness. Death will be forced to give back its prey. I see death, and it has the bodies of the just locked in its dungeons. It has sealed their tombs and marked them for its own. O oh, death, foolish death, your caskets will be ceased and your storehouses broken open. The morning is come, Christ has descended, I hear the trumpets, awake, awake! From the tomb the righteous spring and death sits in confusion and howls in vain, for its empire is deprived of its subjects. Death will not keep one bone of the righteous, not a particle of their dust, not a hair of their heads. Christ has purchased every part of our bodies, the whole body will be complete and united forever in heaven with the glorified soul. Amen. That is our future, beloved, and don't you forget it. And he quotes this psalm, and Peter now comes to the focal point of his argument that he's making in the entire sermon. In verses 29 to 32, he interprets the meaning of Psalm 16. And by the way, good preachers are always interpreting the meaning of the text, right? That's what Peter is doing. He's interpreting the meaning of Psalm 16. He's a good expositor here. At issue is the question, did David mean himself when he wrote that psalm? Did David speak of himself or did he speak of somebody else? Well, David is writing in the first person singular, but that's true of all the prophetic passages in the Old Testament. So was he writing of himself or was he writing of somebody else? Now, Peter, focus on verse 29, he makes the point, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David. Remember, David lived a 1,000 years before uh, Peter that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Wow, a thousand years later, they could still visit the tomb of David. David's body did die. David's body was buried. David's body did see corruption. So much so that his tomb was well known, and they could visit his tomb any time a thousand years later. So David could not have been writing about himself. Peter rightly interprets the Old Testament text that the Holy One is not David, but the son of David, some son, some greater son who is coming in the future. Jesus of Nazareth is that son. Paul interpreted it the same way. Later in the book of Acts, chapter thirteen and verse thirty-six, it says, "For he, he Paul says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for dying as a believer. Fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. David decayed. David died. David did not get resurrected from the dead." As great as David was, David was not the Holy One, and David himself knew he was not the Holy One. The lesser David, that is, King David of the Old Testament, wrote of the greater David, the son of David, whom even Psalm 110 would pick up, and David would realize that son is so great, he calls his own son, do you remember, Lord. And Jesus used this in his debates with the the teachers in the temple on the week that he was crucified. And he said, he asked those leaders, whose son is the Messiah? And they all said, David's son. And Jesus said, if he's David's son, why does he call him Lord? And the answer is because that son of David was more than another human being. That son of David was God in human flesh. Keep in mind, David was promised that his son would be the Messiah. Psalm 132, verse 11, for example, it says, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Someone would come from his loins eventually, and God would take him and set him on his throne. Also, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, Your house, talking to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, God is talking, forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David knew that. David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath. God made an oath. God swore to David with an oath. This is guaranteed. I mean, when God says something, it's true. When God swears it with an oath, I mean, where do you put that? That's going to happen. I'm going to seat one of your descendants on your throne. Unfortunately, many Bible teachers interpret this throne of David as the throne that Jesus sits on right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is not true. David never sat at the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 34, it makes it abundantly clear that David never ascended into heaven. The throne in heaven is God's throne. It's God's own throne. It's not David's throne. It's not even the Messiah's throne. Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It's God's throne. Jesus is waiting at the right hand of the throne of God, as we're told in the Bible, for the time where the Father says to go and he will arise and he'll come back to earth. And then when he comes back to earth, after his second coming, he will sit on his own throne. Immediately upon declaring the right interpretation of Psalm 16, Peter now brings them right back to the present, and he boldly declares, this Jesus God raised up again a fact to which we, and he's talking about these uh, apostles that are there around him, we are witnesses. Think of the impact of those words on all of the Jews that were there. Here we are, 12 men, and we're standing here as witnesses. You only need two or three to establish a fact. We've got 12. All 12 of us over here, all 12 of us saw Jesus the Nazarene raised from the dead, and we are here to give our testimony, and you cannot dismiss our testimony. We were standing here boldly declaring to you what we saw take place just 50 days earlier from when they said this in the same location right there in Jerusalem. Beloved, the best thing about the resurrection of Jesus is not that it was predicted and prophesied about a thousand years before it happened by David. The greatest thing about the resurrection is that it happened. It actually happened. It's a fact of history. There was a man who was raised from the dead in human history, and he's still alive. And there were eyewitnesses, and the evidence for it is unshakable. It has great meaning because it happened. Indeed, it is the central event, not just in the Christian religion, but in all of human history. Jesus' resurrection provides man the only hope he can ever have. People hope in all kinds of things. You go from one country to another, one culture to another, one religion to another, and they have their hopes, but none of those are true hopes. This is the only true hope. And one of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the truthfulness for Christianity in contrast to all other religions and all other philosophies is that historically there was declared right in the middle of where Christ and his enemies were a man who was raised from the dead. And nobody could come up with another plausible theory. Nobody could come up with a body. Nobody could refute the testimony. If they had, Christianity would never have even gotten out of the parking lot. It never would have even gotten started. That is how convinced they were. This solid, this unified apostolic witness, we have it in the New Testament, and God wants you and I just as convinced of this fact as they were. The accuracy and the integrity of the New Testament gives us confidence in our witness and and our proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him raised from the dead. All of this matters. In fact, in the end, I would say this, this resurrection of Jesus, in the end, this is all that matters. Everything that you're going to do this week and next month and all of this year, all of that eventually is going to perish. Your families are going to end. Your jobs are going to end. This government is going to end. The nation is going to end. It is what is connected to the resurrection of Jesus that God brings into the next age. Do you understand that? The only thing that really matters is how you are connected to that resurrection and faith and what God will do to raise you from the dead. Because people talk about, I'm going to die, but I'll live on through my children. No, you won't. I'm going to die, but I'm going to live on through my grandchildren. No, you won't. You'll be dead and you'll decay. But there is one hope, and that is that you will be raised from the dead, and therefore everything that you do in this life for that King of Kings matters. Everything matters because of the resurrection. If the resurrection had not happened, nothing we are doing, even coming here, would matter. In fact, Paul said, if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. This matters. The only thing that matters is the resurrection life, eternal life that Christ will give to us. And he did. Jesus gives his eternal life to anyone who asks him. You ask him today, he'll give you life. Isn't that what 1 John 4 says? In verses 11 and 12, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You want the life that leads to a resurrection life that goes on forever? You need the Son of God in your life. You need to call on him. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was the promise. We haven't even reached the climax, and I only have five minutes. So what am I to do? Peter really has one more very important point, and I, I have to give it to you because Peter gave it to the Jews. It's his closing argument, you might say, that nails down the conviction, and that is fourth. We've gone from the life, the death, the resurrection, now to the ascension. In verses thirty-three through thirty-six, look at verse thirty-three. And he says, "Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear." In other words. He, Peter brings them right back to the strange phenomena that was occurring on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit's coming. See, you did not get to see the Messiah raised from the dead as we did, but you have now experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see and hear the proof that Christ is the Messiah through these signs here in the streets of Jerusalem. You see, God took a beaten-up, bloody, cold, lifeless corpse that was wrapped in spices and and cloth, and it was buried in a, a dark tomb in an insignificant land, Israel, and He raised that Jew, that one person, to the highest place in the universe. And that is all the proof that you need. And along with that, though, comes the signs of the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. Peter, again, goes right back to the Scriptures, and he proves the ascension of the Messiah by going to that psalm I just mentioned, Psalm 110. In that psalm, well, I'll read verse 34. It says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, in other words, the Lord God the Father said to my Lord, the Messiah, who is my Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 is recognized both by Christians and Jews, even the Jews of Jesus' day, as speaking of the coming Messiah. Yes, it was also written by David, but it's talking about David's son. There are two lords. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messianic King, sit at my right hand. Actually, if you go on in Psalm 110, it says, the Lord is at... Thy right hand, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. That's going to be the work of the Messiah. So being at the right hand of God establishes the Messiah in his power and his authority. And Jesus knew that going to the right hand of the Father established him with all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, before it happened, when he was on trial and Caiaphas, the high priest, was questioning him, he made this so clear. Let me just quote to you Matthew 26. Caiaphas is frustrated. He said to Jesus, I put you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, this is the moment, right? People say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, listen up. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? Yes, I am the Son of God, also called the Son of Man. And because I'm sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, I have the authority to ride the clouds back down to earth in power and claim my kingdom. Jesus predicted his own exaltation. He looked forward to his own exaltation. He knew he would be glorified. He knew the status he was going to have before men. And Peter is making sure everybody knows, everybody knows about this, where Jesus is and where he sits now. He's not on a cross crucified, by the way. That's misleading. He's not not on a cross still dying somewhere and helpless. That's not where he is right now. He's not in a little trough in a cave in Bethlehem anymore. That's not where he is right now. Where is he right now? He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's highly exalted book of Ephesians chapter 1 makes a big deal out of this. It says Christ has been raised higher than all other authority. In fact, it says far above all other authorities. In other words, he got above the other authorities and he just kept going. Everyone else was way down below that, angels and principalities and demons. Yes, even the archangel Michael. Yes, even the devil, way down below the authority of Christ why when he returns, he has a robe, and on the robe and on his thigh, he has a name to make sure everybody understands, king of kings. If you're a king, here comes your king. Lord of lords, if you think you're a lord, here comes your master. People ask, is Jesus stronger than Satan? Well, here's your answer. There is no name higher. Muhammad's name is not higher. Muhammad's name is not anywhere near the name of Jesus. Mary's name is not anywhere near close to Jesus. Jesus' name is far greater than all of their names. There is no name higher. There is no name equal with Christ. Christ has total, universal supremacy, and he shares that position of honor with nobody. And he sits there at the right hand of the Father until... That until, anticipates the second coming, until your enemies be made a footstool for your feet. What does that mean? That means that even though he has all authority and power now, he is not acknowledged as having all that authority and power now. The demons have figured it out. Dumb men have not figured it out. The demons know this is the Son of God. Foolish men haven't figured this is the Son of God. One day they will. Every knee eventually either on purpose or being forced will what? Philippians 2, acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is sitting at the right hand of God until, not forever, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, put underneath him, put underneath him in subjection so they finally acknowledge him, acknowledge his authority, acknowledge he was the only way to the Father, acknowledge he was the way, the truth, and the life, acknowledge his soul supremacy, That's Christ. Even in Matthew 25, Jesus made that so clear. In the Olivet Discourse, when he predicted his second coming, he said, this sitting on my throne will come after my second coming. That's why we're premillennial. The kingdom is coming after the second coming. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's who he's talking about himself. When he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You couldn't have a more clear chronological statement. It is only when he has come a second time, then will he sit on his glorious throne. That's the throne of the Messiah. And it says, All the nations will be gathered before him. That is in Jerusalem. That is on earth. And beloved, with the thought of Jesus, the Nazarene's highest exaltation in the minds of these Jews, and the truth of the prophecies that Peter quoted still ringing in the ears of them when they trusted in those scriptures, with the manifestations of the Spirit undeniably displayed there in Jerusalem, and with the boldness and confidence of this. Fishermen from Galilee and all the other men standing behind him, these 12 apostles, really with the other believers, the 120 believers that are there. it's It's like Peter took a gavel and he just whacked it down and he said, that's the final verdict. And here it is. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. I cannot imagine standing there with those men when that was said. You put a nail in the coffin of the Messiah. I just put a nail in the coffin of your condemnation. They stood condemned for killing the Holy One of Israel. You better believe the power of God attended Peter's words that day. If we cheat a little bit and look into verse 37, which I, I actually is not cheating. I hope you'll do that. It says, when they heard this, they were... Now, I read in Athens recently, I was given a devotion to the, to the um, Hope Academy kids, and notice when Paul finished preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 17 to the philosophers on Mars Hill, most of them just jeered and sneered and mocked. But that's not what happened here. They were pierced to the heart. They were cut in the deepest part of their being and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What are we going to do now? If we've killed the Messiah, what's there for us to do now? Is there any hope for us? Is there any response we can have? And Peter has the solution. It is true, this was a horrific thing. You killed your Messiah. But there's still hope. We're going to get to that next time. But I want everyone to know that what he says is you have to repent. You have to completely change your mind. Whatever you've been believing, you've got to stop believing that. And now these are the things you have to believe. Whatever direction you were going in life, because your mind changes, the course of your life needs to change. That's repentance. It's like a U-turn. If you're there, you thought you were a Christian, but you really haven't acknowledged Christ as the Lord of your life, you're not saved, you're not a Christian, here's how you become a Christian. Repent. Give your life to Christ. Change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Come back to Christ. Come back to him, acknowledge him as your Lord and as your authority, and he will save you, and you will be a child of his. And all of the sins that you've committed, maybe you might not think they're as bad as this, but any sin throws us away from the presence of God. God will forgive you for that sin. It doesn't matter what it's been. It doesn't matter if you've had an abortion and you feel you feel sick about that. It doesn't matter if you've committed some terrible sexual acts It doesn't matter if you've had hatred in your heart towards people. It doesn't matter if you've treated people and your family poorly. Those things are bad. Those things are terrible. You should be pierced to the heart for those things. Whatever you've done, you should be pierced to the heart for that. Even if you think you're a good person, if you really saw yourself the way God sees you, you'd be pierced to the heart with the sins you've committed against him. You're not a good person. But you don't have to stay there. If it cuts, if it hurts, that's good. But here's the joy. Repent, and God will give you life. He'll give you life forever and ever and ever. And that is the good news of Christianity. Father, send us forth from this place with joy in our hearts and help anyone who has not yet repented to do so this very day. May your power attend also our men's retreat. And, Father, bless and watch over our ladies at home as well. Thank you for this time of worship of your Son and for being able to see him high and lofty and exalted. Help our faith to soar along with that vision we have from your servant, Peter, and thank you for this text. In Jesus' name, we pray.